Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode two of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, Travis and I talk about the intriguing topic of yoga sequencing. We start off with a general discussion about yoga sequencing, what it is, and why it matters. And we take a look at some of the common different approaches to sequencing yoga classes that we typically see in the yoga world. And then, of course, knowing us and this podcast, we question a few claims that we sometimes hear about how sequences should be put together. For example, that rule that we often learn about backbends being stimulating and forward folds being relaxing. And then after that, we turn our attention to what is probably the most popular approach to yoga sequencing, which is peak pose yoga sequencing. And we talk about what peak pose sequencing is, and we go over some of the advantages to this approach. But then we also highlight some quite surprising disadvantages of peak pose sequencing that most yogis without an exercise science background have probably never even thought about. This episode might change the way you think about yoga sequencing thanks to movement science, and we're excited for you to listen to it. If you happen to be a member on my website, JennyRawlings.com, and the link to that is in the show notes, just know that you can also actually watch the video version of this podcast as a bonus feature of your membership. So if you prefer to listen via audio, that's great, and you can just listen right here. But if you'd like to actually see Travis and I talk face-to-face as we have this conversation, feel free to do so over on my website. If you enjoy this episode, we would hugely appreciate your support in subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast wherever you're listening to it. And now without further ado, here's our episode. In this episode, we're talking all about yoga sequencing and specifically bigger picture sequencing when it comes to the general arc of a yoga class, not so much the sequencing on an individual pose to pose level. But for a good look at yoga sequencing at the finer level, pose to pose wise, we have a blog post on Jenny's blog called Yoga Pose Counterpose Rules. Are they necessary? And the link to that will be in the show notes. So let's just get right into it. And my first question for you, Jenny, is what is sequencing and why does it matter? Well, I think that's a very good question. And uh, to me, Yoga sequencing matters because it basically helps create a meaningful experience or at least like layer on intention behind what a yoga teacher chooses to teach in class or how they design the overall class. Because otherwise you could have people on the map and just lead them through any random assortment of yoga poses. And that's also, that's totally fine and would have its own benefits. But the sequencing kind of gives that that overall thread that ties everything together, kind of weaves it together into one package so that people 
people leave class uh, with some like impression or experience or maybe just maybe maybe a shift in understanding about their body or I mean, it can be so many things. But to me, basically, yoga sequencing is like how you weave together an entire practice to layer on some sense of meaning and purpose so that it's not just a bunch of random movements thrown together. Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of reminds me, and this isn't an accurate representation, but of the of CrossFit. It's because people people talk about CrossFit like, oh, it's just a, some random assortment of exercises and it's not like a, a well thought out um, program, right? Which isn't really true. It, that's kind of like a naive understanding of CrossFit. And when CrossFit is done well, it's more of a like like what you're describing of a nicely sequenced and put together movement mm-hmm. package as opposed to just like uh, randomly choosing exercises, but that's, that's the perception that people have. And, and it also reminds me of the distinction, distinction that some people make between exercise and training where it's like exercise is just kind of random without a really big picture, um, you know, thought process of what you're doing. Whereas training is like a more well thought out in advance. Here's what I'm trying to get out of it. Here's how I'm going to lay things out. Those are such interesting distinctions and I hadn't even thought about that. And I don't think, I mean, I've heard a lot of critiques of CrossFit and I know that they are not all well-founded, but I'm not sure that I've heard that exact uh, critique. Oh yeah. People are just like, like, oh, it's just random, you know, no, no rhyme or reason to the exercises Mm -hmm. or the order or the, what you're just, what you're doing. And that's, that's not maybe poorly executed (laughs) CrossFit is that, but uh, right. Right. the the people who are you see on TV and you know doing it well, they they clearly have a good plan. That totally makes sense, and it also makes me think about how uh, before we started our strength for yoga program, which is kind of this like monthly strength programs over time with different themes for each month. Before that, I still ha- um, got so many benefits out of my own personal strength practice, but I definitely wasn't packaging my strength work into the kind of this overarching now i'm talking more this is like on a this isn't just like the overarching arc of one workout but right a plan you, over time. you were planning individual workouts but not uh, that's right a week at a time or whatever you were kind of day to day which is maybe yeah which is maybe what yoga teachers do i would say when they're thinking about sequencing unless, unless maybe they are teaching a class <laughs> you know three days a week or whatever and they're like well going to do this on this day and this on that day. Yeah, which they might. I mean, maybe they have people in like um an 8-week yoga program with like a certain specific goal and this whole group sticks together over yeah. time. So if you know that you're having the same students either on a week to week or or they're coming mm-hmm. in multiple times, you wouldn't necessarily do the same You you would think uh, about that, right? <laughs> like, yes. oh, last week we did this this week. So it, there's sequencing at the level of what are we going to do today that's different from the next time. And then there's just, what are we going to do today? Absolutely. And uh, I I feel like for the purposes of this conversation in this podcast, like most yoga teachers on a day-to-day basis, say you're teaching at like a busy yoga studio and you teach multiple classes a week and your students, it's a different assortment every time. So for most yoga teachers in that, in that setting and in practical sense, it's mostly like, what am I going to do today? We're talking about sequencing within one day, not necessarily um, over time, Yeah, but it is that interesting. Can be, how... That can be a future episode. 
Yeah, exactly. <sighs> How you might design yoga over time with like a sense of progression and purpose. But for today, we're just talking about from the opening to the closing of one yoga practice. Okay. Yeah. So, so why, I mean, you, you alluded to this before, but why does it matter or what, what happens if you don't have a, you know, you don't have sequencing in mind as, as a teacher, what, what happens for the students in that class? Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. That's a good question. Well, I think, uh, again, maybe a lack of some potential impression or sense of meaning that someone can take away with them, possibly without intention behind one sequencing. I think that there may be a lack of the ability to to teach as effectively or for like learning opportunity to happen. There still would be really great movement taking place and all of the benefits that we got from that and um, mobilizing and paying attention to the body and the breath with, without like intentional sequencing. But I think when, when you layer on intentional sequencing, then you have the opportunity to really design the class from beginning to end. And um, maybe you had some sort of purpose or theme or teaching that you really wanted to weave in on whatever level or whatever that looks like, I think that can come across more effectively when there's when it's sequenced well or sequenced yeah. with intention. So, so you can get a lot of general benefits, but we're mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. like the last 20% or, or maybe more, but uh, of making it a really cohesive experience mm -hmm. um, as word. opposed to just doing things in a not very well thought out order. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that leads into my next question for you is what are some of the common ways that yoga classes are sequenced? Mm -hmm. So there it really, there's a wide variety of, of themes and focuses that you can weave in when you're sequencing a class. And it can really vary on yoga style or teacher preference. Uh, we also know that there are some styles of yoga where the sequences are, are non-varying. So for example, like Bikram yoga, which is always the same set of 26 poses and always practice in the heat at so, some so specific. They must be very well thought out. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, why would anybody do the same 26 things every time? They must have a good order. Right, right, exactly. It must be like perfect for them. And then in the Ashtanga system, that is also non-varying, although they do have uh, it technically goes up to six different sequences, although hardly any um, human mortal makes it up to like five and six. Most people are doing the first or the first and the second. Uh, but even so, the, those are those are really set sequences that don't vary. So like teachers of Ashtanga and teachers of Bikram, they don't really even have to worry about sequencing. It's not they have a lot of other things that, that and other skills that they um uh, that they work on as teachers, but or can utilize as teachers. But sequencing isn't something that comes it, into is the that equation. Always true, because I thought, and maybe I'm wrong, but I I thought I had taken an Ashtanga class years and years ago, and I don't remember it being the exact same sequence over the time over time. 
maybe mm. it wasn't actually Ashtanga. I mean, the teacher, that was what she was trained in. So maybe it was Ashtanga-like, but... It might have been like Ashtanga-influenced. Uh, if it wasn't the set sequence of like the primary series or the intermediate or the advanced series is what they call third. If it wasn't one of those, then it wasn't traditional Ashtanga. Okay. Because that's always Mysore-style traditional Ashtanga in the tradition of Sri Kriya Patabi Joyce is always this like set sequence. Some teachers... In that tradition, I mean, sometimes they take a little bit of leeway to offer some modifications. Right. Sometimes, yeah. but but they don't change the sequence that that hmm. I know of. No. So yeah, I actually remember you. I think mentioning that before. Yeah, my that, my like, whole I've taken an Ashtanga class. My whole Ashtanga <laughs> identity is a lie. Right, it's not a lie. But I, I bet that teacher was using the term loosely. I, I think there are people out there who might. I, yeah. So my before I understood it better from you, my naive understanding was oh it's just a vigorous flow mm, which mm -hmm. is just more which of it a, is. yeah but it that technically would be like a vigorous vinyasa, vinyasa flow, flow right yeah exactly and so vinyasa flow which uh in my impression that's one of the most common styles of yoga that we have in our hands uh vinyasa flow is a style that that is not a set sequence <laughs> and it changes uh every time and so that's an example of a class where teachers of vinyasa flow or or flow yoga or uh, hatha yoga, I mean, really just all the other types of you, gentle yoga, restorative yoga, all the others, Iyengar yoga, those sequences vary. And so because of that, the teachers, they need to be intentional. They need to think about some teachers think about it as they go. Some teachers wing it as they teach, but it's still intentional. I could, They're still I could deciding. Never. Right, I know. I'm, I'm more of, of a... the thought of going into a class without a plan. <laughs> I, but I admire a, a teacher that can do that, mm -hmm. or or even even I mean, like you, you don't have it written down necessarily anywhere. It's just in your head. Right. Like, Holy crap! That's true. And some teachers write it down and have notes like with them at the yeah. right in front of their mat. And I think that uh, I think that is also totally fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Although I've heard people be a little judgy about that for some reason, and I question that because i think you just want you i mean a well-designed class that makes um you know layers on that meaning in that container for an experience that we want who cares how the person whether they memorize right. it or reading it or are coming up with it on the fly i mean you just you know you like their sequencing when you like their sequencing i don't know anyway you had asked about what were some of the mm -hmm. some of the uh, common methods of sequencing Right. And so I'll just I'll just uh, go over like a few, a few, but like one common way that a teacher may theme or sequence a yoga class is kind of more around like a biomechanical focus. So something like maybe we are strengthening a particular set of muscles today. Maybe I'm teaching a yoga class with a an emphasis on posterior chain strength or glute strength or something, uh, or core strength, like abdominal strength. So you could do something like strength, uh, you could do something like mobilizing or mobility work for a particular area. Maybe um, maybe you're teaching a class on say hamstring uh, flexibility. Now I'm using kind of flexibility and mobility to be similar in terms, but maybe a class on hamstring flexibility where maybe you sequence uh, a lot of uh, maybe passive and active ways of stretching and targeting the hamstrings that way, something like that. Uh, other ideas for for biomechanical considerations are 
like a skill, like maybe you're working on balance and it's a balance themed yoga class. And so you incorporate a lot of single leg balances or maybe even quadruped hands and knees, lifting a foot and a leg, which is still a balance, but maybe in a different sense. So things like that, like you pick a, th a biomechanical theme and kind of weave it throughout mm -hmm. the class. Or, yeah, so either a muscle or a region of the body, more mm -hmm. an anatomical or, or more, more of a skill, some sort or of skill, either flexibility or strength or balance. Yeah, and that's exactly. Kind of, that's kind of the theme that you're operating in or continually revisiting. That's right. Exactly. You're kind of using that to inform and theme your class for the day. I actually, um, I definitely had experiences where I get to class and the teacher says, so what do you all want to, sometimes it's, yeah. we're going to work on this today. And sometimes it's, what do you all want to work on today? And you know, everybody says the same five things, oh, hand, hand, tight my, hamstrings, or, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. And maybe the teacher kind of knows that they're going to get like a, a handful from a handful of selection. It's like a, uh, a musician taking requests, but then knowing what they're going to play anyway. <laughs> but at least giving the, the illusion the impression, or the impression yeah, that they're yeah, listening. Yeah. Yeah. That's Did really I hear funny. somebody say, yeah. <laughs> They're like picking it out of the crowd, but the, no one really said that. Yeah. It's really funny. Uh, so anyway, biomechanical focus, but then you could also do something like a theme of class around, say a type of yoga pose. So heart openers, which is kind of like the yoga word for back bends mm -hmm. or forward folds. So a moment ago, I mentioned like hamstring flexibility, but maybe you're just forward folds in general. And all the shapes, like the different asanas that can embody what a forward fold is, um, arm balances, you know, things like that. Like you pick a, a family, a pose, and then you you make your yoga sequence kind of woven around that theme. Mm -hmm. So picking, yeah, something like that. Balance poses, twists. Uh, another way that people might sequence the class is more more kind of like a, maybe an energetic impression that they want the class to leave, the, their students to leave with. So maybe something like, quote, an energizing sequence. So I want my students to leave energized today. And so you weave together the poses in a manner in which, in your mind, they would leave feeling energized or calmness or groundedness or relaxing. So like restorative and gentle tend to be more geared toward leaving people more relaxed and calm. And that, that the, the energizing versus down regulating regulating or relaxing mm -hmm. those are mm -hmm. sometimes paired with back bending and forward folding right so yeah. like back bending is energizing you don't buy that though <laughs> no really those are that's widely taught that like um back bends are supposedly all quote stimulating this is i mean dep i mean of course it depends on the source but this i find to be a wide claim in the yoga world Backbends are stimulating and forward folds are are calming or relaxing. And like these categories of poses are just given these these names um, or these descriptions for for the effects that they have on the body. And I'm really familiar with those, but I feel like that's an oversimplification of how sure. human bodies and movement work. And for example, like is that is that to suggest that Urdhvadhanya, yeah, Urdhvadhanya a full body backbend would be energizing because that's a backbend. But what about crow pose, which is a an arm balance and your spine is in the opposite direction, so it's a forward fold. But it's still a super effortful movement because you're holding yourself with all your upper body and core strength. So is the idea that Urdhvadhanya would be stimulating, but crow pose would be relaxing and calming just because of, just because of one year in extension and in one year in flexion? Like, to me, that just seems oversimplified um yeah. there you go myth myth debunked 
Exactly. We have a great blog post on the blog, which is uh, three claims yoga teachers should stop making about the body. I think that's the title. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, and it was written by these awesome special guest teachers. And in that blog post, they talked about about just suggesting that we we not make so many assumptions and claims as to the effects that the yoga poses that we teach or the sequences that we teach will have on students' bodies. Do you oh, know, you know I don't even know. Yeah, and I don't know if they actually mentioned those specifically, but that's a a, yeah. a nice application of oh yeah, like not everybody's going to experience a backbend as energetic as like a stimulating. Tire me out. Yeah, right. <laughs> not not that that's the they could tire you out and still leave you energized, as opposed to like because tiring you out isn't mm-hmm, the same mm-hmm. as calming that might you be down. Like, that's so true. That's like I'm wiped out, which is like yeah. a different effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that. Um, on a musculoskeletal or a biomechanical level, I think we can talk about the effects. Like we know that a certain way of doing a movement may potentially strengthen the glutes or so. Like we know that, and we could probably talk about that. But beyond um, like stretching and strengthening and the way that those target the body, I think when we get beyond that into these other realms, it just it's not so black and white. And I'm not sure how helpful it is to make these assumptions about how poses will affect people. But it's certainly, yeah, oh, yeah, I, sorry. I think the only the only thing that you can really say, like, that the effect would be is if the person, if you tell the person that backbends are energizing, mm. and that's what they think, <laughs> then there's something to the, mm-hmm. you planted the thinking that that's, yeah, yeah. That's a but really great might, point. So you might. In, in isolation, if novices took a backbend class and you interviewed them afterwards versus a forward fold randomized mm-hmm. crossover design and you said which one made you feel energized and which one made you feel uh, more calm i don't know that that would i don't think it would necessarily bear out the way that you would expect that is such a great point i'm sure no one would ever conduct a study like that but wouldn't that be interesting Maybe yeah we yeah do an informal anyway you know something like a poll or a survey but I oh think yeah it'd be hard oh, you, well, you to could... find you're not going to find people who don't um, know those things, maybe, in your yeah, or haven't Instagram been audience, subjected but, to those yeah, suggestions. That would be interesting. Do you find how do you find backbends, or do you find backbends energizing? Yes or no? Yeah, totally. Yeah, put it that on, would be put interesting. Put it on the list. <laughs> oh, I will. I will. That's a really good, really good thought. So anyway, there are a lot of other. Um, themes and ways people can think about yoga sequencing you can sequence around uh, again and then this gets a little cross like bringing emotions and psychology in sometimes i wonder if that's crossing boundaries a little too much but i know that there can be classes themed around like letting go like a, like an emotion um or classes themed around grief or classes and, themed... the, and the the poses would be selected and sequenced in such a way to do that At, or it's more the the cueing surrounding it or both? That's a great question. I think I think in those cases, it's probably more how the language and the cueing um, surrounds and contains the physical asanas being being done, packaging them that way. But, but maybe a teacher could layer on a sense of how they understand that yoga poses may affect the body. Um, but that could just yeah. be another way that they might yeah. sequence. That is, that is tough though, because one only has their own experience to say, well, this is how this yeah. affects my body. And maybe you could ask, you know, you have enough experience with students and, and kind of reading the room to see how they're responding, but not it. It's 
you're never going to have everybody walk out of there feeling energized or feeling <laughs> calm because of the back because you chose back bends or forward folds as the that's such a good point because as you were saying that i was just thinking well i think you know if someone leaves a restorative class you probably could have a, an assumption they're probably going to leave that class feeling more down regulated but is sure. that about the overall style of the class or is about it was is it about that it was back bends or forward folds well wait so that is a question right so is a restorative class in general more biased to forward folds that's a great or like, do they not backbend in, res in a restorative class? No. Um, really? Yeah. At least my experience of restorative is there are restorative backbends and there are restorative forward folds. There are restorative twists. Oh, They're so they, they, do, they, they do do uh, backbends in a restorative class. Mm -hmm. That's fair mm -hmm. game. Yeah, like you can do something called like supported fish, uh, which uh, is like lying on your back and you're propped up underneath. It feels really good. The, the dissonance here. <laughs> I know that's there's that's so true because I think in I think also within restorative yoga it's also probably taught that different families of poses do have these different effects. But anyway, leaving a but it's more the style of being supported uh, on these props and just relaxing, probably regardless of shape, you know, position, but more yeah. just like that the fact sense. that you're supported. Yeah, totally. So what what so, other ways of sequencing? Um, are there you could also sequence around like just like a broader cult this would be more about i think the language and the, what people talk about in the class but you could sequence around like a cultural theme or event like the new year so i'm going to teach a new year's class or a gratitude class you could teach that anytime but especially like we find those around thanksgiving so that's like a major national major national holiday and that might influence how you might sequence or talk about or put poses together uh, and you could also sequence around specific populations. So if you have a prenatal population or if you're teaching athletes or, you know, things like that, um, you're teaching a specific community, then maybe you would sequence with their activity or whatever the theme that they all identify with, um, mm -hmm. how that is connected. But there is one type of sequencing that really many of the ones I've already mentioned are also really, there's a lot of overlap, of course, mm -hmm. things aren't like so distinct, but I would suggest that the most popular and widespread type of sequencing for a yoga class is called peak pose sequencing. Peak pose sequencing. So that's like the most common method. And like I said, some of these other things that, that I've mentioned can be included, like you you might teach a class themed around gratitude, but it's still, pro it still most likely will have a peak pose overall arc, like peak post sequencing and forming it. Mm -hmm. And you've heard of peak post sequencing before, right? We've talked about it. Before. I have. Yes. <laughs> it's very, it's very so, common. So what, um, how does it work? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the yoga meets movement science podcast. If you're enjoying this conversation between Travis and myself, you might enjoy working with us in a more direct way in your own yoga or movement practice. For example, are you interested in bringing strength into your movement practice? Maybe you already strength train alongside your yoga practice, but could use a more structured program designed specifically for yogis. Strength for Yoga Remote Group Training is an all-levels online strength program that Travis and I founded that's designed to enhance and fill in the gaps in a mat-based yoga practice. Our monthly strength program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. 
Travis and I are offering our podcast listeners 30% off their first month in Strength for Yoga remote group training to try it out. Just use the discount code PODCAST30 and sign up on my website, jennyrellings.com, and the link is in the show notes. There's also an option on my website to take continuing education courses with me or to sign up for the yoga class library by itself. Use discount code PODCAST30 for any of the membership plans on my site for 30% off your first month. And that's jennyrollings.com and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode on yoga sequencing. And you've heard of peak post sequencing before, right? We've talked about it. I have. Yes. (laughs) It's very, it's very common. So what, um, how does it work? The way that peak post sequencing works is that the teacher will choose a quote peak pose or like an apex pose. And it's generally that pose is a pose that's considered to be extra challenging or difficult. And the class, the way that the class is designed is to basically lead everybody up to that peak pose. And you lead them up like through, um, sometimes a lot of the language that's used around it is breaking the peak pose down into component parts. Um, you know, just like smaller parts and body positions and movements that can make up this grander, uh, more whole body peak pose. And you like kind of weave those component parts throughout the class. You might teach certain skills that are involved in that peak pose leading up to the peak pose. So you prepare people for the peak pose all throughout most of the class. Like I'd say in most examples, it's like the first three quarters of the class is like warm up and then prep and component parts and everything leading up. And then the peak pose generally happens uh, about 75%, 80% into the class. And that's where people do whatever it is, crow pose, um, handstands, arm balances and inversions are common. Uh, but it can also be like bendy, flexible poses that require a lot of flexibility. And sometimes all of like um, dancer pose, Natarajasana is a standing single leg balance. That's also a pretty big back bend. And that's a common one that's treated as a peak mm-hmm. pose. So after so you, the class, oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I'm almost done. After the class uh, works on the peak pose, then the tail end of the class, and it's usually like the last 20%-ish, these are just rough estimates, then it's cool down. So however you cool down to wind down after the peak pose and then Shavasana and then it's over. Got it. So maybe first five to 10 minutes is like centering, uh, mm-hmm, get, mm-hmm. like getting into the breath in whatever pose you wanna do. And then you have some sort of uh, more dynamic warm up where you're moving through like gentler stretches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get into like some more uh, vigorous movement. And then like sun salutations, yeah. maybe. And, and then you're like, like ready for your peak pose. Or like, did <laughs> I miss anything? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. Like, so more dynamic, like sun citation-y flowy things, standing poses, all of that kind of, yeah. So you, um, move a lot and exert a lot of energy on your path up leading up to the peak pose and preparing people for the peak pose all to kind of feed into students getting that peak. So the, the idea is if you walked in, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get right into your handstand wheel, any back, whatever Mm -hmm. back bend you're doing, whatever deep forward fold or twist you're doing. So we are method, very, very, um, intentionally, uh, building up to that, to give you, that's the word methodically 
building up to that to give you, you know, all access throughout your body to the positions and um, connection to the muscles that you'll Strain. need to be able to express that position that the goal peak is or the goal poses most or embody it most effectively. Exactly. Yes. I think you explained that perfectly well. Yeah. That's the, um, that is the most common way that yoga classes are sequenced to the, so what, the peak pose model. Yeah. What are, what are the, the, some of the benefits in your mind of doing it that way? One way that I like about that approach is it, it often involves so, so you're building up to the peak pose. So over the course leading up to it, you're, um, I don't know if yoga teachers would, if all yoga teachers would use this term, but you may be teaching like regressions of the peak pose building up. So you do some form and then maybe a little later you come back and you add something on that makes it more challenging and you know, leading up. So I think it can be, I like that idea as far as educating people on um, the different stops along the way to the peak pose so that when the class actually gets to the peak pose, people are informed on if they didn't feel ready or capable for the full quote, full peak pose, they have already visited these other variations that they can feel comfortable taking and still feel Got like they're it. doing, doing it. That makes you know? a lot of sense. Yeah. So could you give an example of a pose where, and some, some of the modifications that you might, everybody might do it the, the, that way the first time. And then the second time you layer on something a little bit more, but then you still offer the option to repeat the way that it was done the mm -hmm. first time. What would yes. you like? Uh, so maybe something like, uh, just think of crow pose bakasana, which is that classic. Well, it's like the logo of strength for yoga, but you're balancing on your hands and your knees are on your upper arms. So maybe that's your chosen peak pose. That's what you're working up towards. So along the way, I mean, there are a lot of ways this could look like one thing, one way could be you have people reclined on their back and they reach their arms toward the ceiling and draw their knees in and they just show themselves that they can embody the shape of crow, which, and actually doing that still involves some core, core engagement. So it's still utilizing some um, muscle activity you want in final crow. But uh, like you could just, that would be a total like, that's a total regression and also on the back. And then maybe, you know, bring them into squat or malasana pose, which is, it's not the same, but it's a similar like flexion type shape. And then maybe malasana bringing their hands down and just shifting their weight into their arms, but still keeping the feet on the floor. So that could be like a, a third step toward crow pose. Then maybe people, uh, I like feet on a block sometimes. So like perch with your feet on a block, then hands down, and then that starts you a little bit higher. So you're getting a little bit more toward lift off, maybe lift one foot off the block, mm -hmm. or if you're not using the block, just feet on the ground, lift one foot, lift the other. So just all these are kind of stages toward getting there. Um, uh, just, just kind of like that. And then of course, along the way you might teach, uh, scapular protraction or like use plank pose to really teach how to push into the floor and lift your heart away from the floor and find that same action, which you'll eventually want in crow pose. Um, I know that's not an example of, of, a, a stepping point off crow, but just something that teachers might weave in as far as a quote component part. So mm -hmm. if you kind of like stage it that way or progress it that way then people kind of know, like, uh, I once had a teacher describe it as like, you could just choose to get off the bus at these different stops. And I like, I like that. that. Yeah, like you've got the ultimate, the quote ultimate stop, but then you have all these stops along the way you can get off the bus. So that would be an example just off the top of my head for something like crow pose. And so in, in doing that way, 
uh, we just said you're you're giving people options for mm-hmm. uh, so they don't just think, well, we're doing crow and I have to do crow, but I can't do crow. Mm-hmm. What do I do? So it's okay. Well, I know that the what I just did with my feet on the blocks was sufficiently challenging for me. So when we get to the next step and the teacher's offering people to take crow, I'm going to stick to the one mm-hmm. I just did and do that again. Exactly. So they still have something productive they can do. It's not as discouraging. It's not like you could do crow or you can't do crow. And that's yeah. something that like our friend Catherine Wilkinson, I see her talk and write a lot about uh, yoga teacher trainer in South Africa, but she writes about how all too often and in her experience in the yoga world with crow pose, for example, it would just be like, if you could do crow, come into crow. And if you can't just child pose. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, then there's no bridge between the two and it's not very empowering for people. And then you're, you're never going to, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. it's going to be really hard to get there if you're just like, well, I can't do, chi- uh, I can't do crow. So I'm just going to take child's pose. Just always going to take child's pose. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But yeah, so, so it's giving people stopping points along the, uh, along the bus it's teaching people how to break it down or, mm-hmm. you know, here are the components. And then um, just the idea, it's like a nice prolonged warm up, right? So uh, it's a very prolonged warm up. It's, it's a, 70 yeah. to 80 percent. Yes, yes. Uh, but so I, I, so the, the idea is if you, you walk in cold, you're not necessarily going to be able to embody pose as the a crow pose as in fact, effectively as if you have this warm up period. That's the, yeah, this like 70 you, you might even, of the class. You might even hurt yourself you might if you tried to do it before you were properly warmed up, right? That's right. There's a poten- yeah, potential for increased injury risk. Yeah. So I feel Not a guarantee you... or anything, but no, I mean, you, no. you, you could easily take a crow right now and you'd be fine. Yeah. But not, like but you... not everybody could. That's right. It's so individual. It's so specific, but you're totally right. Like, yeah, many people who have done these poses for a long time can just bop into crow or into handstand in the, in the <laughs> middle of the day, anytime. And it's fine. They don't need to prep for it. Um, so, so these are some of the ideas for why peak post sequencing can be helpful and make sense. But <laughs> you and I have had some conversations, uh, before, and I think this is one of the, one of the reasons why it could be so valuable for us, whatever box we may be in, like I'm, I'm coming to movement from a yoga box you're coming to movement from like a strength and conditioning box and other boxes as well, I know. But we tend to have these like um, primary modes through which we view the body and movement. And it can be, I think, really helpful to have conversations and engage and connect with people from outside our box who can open our eyes about things. Because I've always come to yoga sequencing uh, with, with my yoga background and that's the lens through which I view that. But in talking to you, I've had some huge realizations, at least huge to me, it's all relative, but really eye-opening realizations about about sequencing and about how that peak pose, that typical peak pose sequencing style can actually have some negative aspects or maybe not be so ideal in some ways. Mm -hmm. So we thought we could talk about that today as well. Yeah. So my my lens for this is, uh, there's an analogy that uh, applies to strength training and it applies to the idea of warming up. And so the analogy is imagine that your energy levels, energy reserves are like a bag of sand. And so the minute you step into the gym onto your yoga mat, the bag of sand is punctured. 
and the sand begins exiting the back. And so the the idea is the minute you start your practice, uh, the sand is draining out. So you want to there's and there's a finite amount of sand there. You have a finite amount of energy. You want to make sure that you have enough energy and you're 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 allocating your sand effectively. Right. So what the the idea is, of course, we're recommending that people warm up. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not it's generally not a good idea to just go and start doing the hardest thing you're planning right on doing that bat. day right off the bat. Um, th- there, there's a reason for warm-up, uh, enhanced performance, reduced risk of injury, all of that. Um, but the idea is if you, let's say you have an hour that you're planning on being active and you spend um, an inordinate amount of time warming up, mm-hmm. then by the time, and, and I've been guilty of this in the past, um, by the time you get to the workout, two things happen. One, you might be fatigued from if you did a really vigorous warm up, and two, you've run out of time or you've you've taken precious time away from the workout and allocated it to the warm up. So then you you get to the hour mark, and this is this might be more of a strength training mm-hmm. context, but you have a lot of stuff planned for your workout, and but you only have an hour, and you end up not being able to do the end because you wasted too much time warming up. So the idea is, well, let's find the optimal amount of time for the warm-up. So the warm-up isn't definitely not taking more time than the workout itself. The actual, like, quote, training. Um, yeah. So so maybe in, in this example of an hour, uh, you have you warm up for 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, and then your workout is 40 minutes. Or ba- mm-hmm. Basically, the other way of thinking of it is, how short can I make the warm-up? Uh, so that I get the benefits from the warm-up and then I can go into the workout. So with that in mind, my uh, my question is, well, with peak pose sequencing, what you described is we are building and building and building for the first maybe 80% of mm-hmm. the practice or the time on the mat to this peak sequence or this peak pose. Um, but what would happen if through that building process, you tired yourself out mm-hmm. to the point that you weren't able to, to so much that you were not able to embody the pose, the goal pose as effectively as if you had had a shorter warm up mm-hmm. period where you just, you got yourself ready to go in the first 10 to 20 minutes and then peak pose. Right and off then, the, yeah. Yeah. Or just right off the bat, uh, maybe 20 minutes into the hour and then, but then you know, what we, would you do, Travis, with the what, whole rest of the class what, time? Right. Like after you, the peak post, then you have all this time you after. Just, yeah, you just have what to would you have do? a... You would have a 40-minute cool down? No. No? Uh, <laughs> so so with peak pose, the idea is we are um, all through those 40 minutes, we are creating acute adaptations mm-hmm. that are going to allow us to embody the pose better in and the acute, moment. Can't define right? acute so, versus chronic. And, what I mean by acute is... We are working in that moment to uh, activate, mobilize, prepare Mm -hmm. um, for this session, the session that we're in now. Short short term, like within session? Mm -hmm. So within session, we are acutely preparing Mm -hmm. ourselves for the peak pose. That would be contrasted with a chronic adaptation where we are strengthening, mobilizing, not, not preparing, preparing 
for that moment. Yeah. We're preparing for a later occasion. <laughs> so, so the idea is if you're uh, desiring or trying to get at chronic adaptations, then you're not expecting what you do now to um, benefit you in that moment mm -hmm. or in that session, but it's more about the bigger picture of, okay, the next time I uh, try to visit this pose, I have previously built strength mm -hmm. or mobility or whatever whatever it is that you're after balance um and, and so you get that for chronic if you're uh, if you're working on something acutely there will be chronic benefits mm -hmm. um, but it's a, a slight change of perspective because what we're saying is okay warm up um expediently for 20 minutes now you are at your in your state of uh, prime readiness for mm -hmm. your peak pose. And then what we would do, what do you do with the other 40 minutes? Well, you continue to work on uh, things that would support. If Crow, go back to Crow mm -hmm. example, if Crow is your focus for that day, you would continue to work on breaking down aspects of Crow with the thought process that I'm building my capacity for mm -hmm. Crow for a later in a long-term uh, manner. Yeah. Yeah, for chronic long-term adaptations. Mm -hmm. So you can continue yeah. to work the protraction, the mm -hmm. um, abdominal flexion. strength. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the Condition your wrists, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Uh, and you'll, you'll have done some of that in the warm-up, just as much as you need to where you feel I'm ready. And then you do the thing and then you can keep working on other aspects of it or the same aspects of it without having to worry about fatiguing yourself because you already did the thing. That's right. You already did the thing and you did it, it pretty yeah. early on rather than at the end because yeah. you're more and, and primed I, to do yeah, it better. Yeah, and maybe maybe I'm the only person who worries about this, but uh, <laughs> you you know, in, in gearing up for this peak pose, you, you're like straddling this line between, okay, I'm trying to get myself ready and readier and readier, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to fatigue myself because mm -hmm. then uh, my readiness is decreasing. Well, can we, if we do the pose earlier and then we devote the rest of the practice to more of the chronic adaptation, then we don't have to worry about fatigue at all because we're not, that's right. Uh, we're not uh, trying to attempt this, um, strong or deep pose yeah. af after the fact we can just go we can go to uh failure which is a, a, uh -huh, another uh -huh. conversation that yeah. yeah doesn't doesn't we often don't hear in the yoga world but let's say we're trying to build strength um you wouldn't often do chaturangas to failure because then it, like early on in a yoga practice because then you couldn't do anymore <laughs> um mm -hmm. but if we if we weren't if we didn't have to worry about overly fatiguing ourselves because we had gotten the hard or hardest portion of the practice out of the way, then we could do some more fatiguing things that might have more chronic benefit without fear of overly mm -hmm. fatiguing ourselves because of something coming up later. It makes, it makes so much sense. Yeah. When you first reflected this to me about sequencing it, like I said, it, it blew my mind because I've never, I've never heard anybody in the yoga world talk about it this way, but if you think about a strength training context, it makes a lot of sense. And we know yoga is not strength training, but like in a, in a typical strength training workout, you, what do you usually start off? I right, mean, you do right, a warm right. up, but then you start yeah. off with. So, so you do your warm up, whatever it is for however long, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's less. Maybe less. 
if it's more then it could be becoming counterproductive because you want to get in, in a strength training practice, you'll get into your hardest thing first. That, yeah, because that if was you, a, yeah. Because if you don't do that, if you do your not hardest thing first, and then you try to do your hardest thing second or third, you've already um, wasted Fatigued. isn't really the right word, but yeah, you've you've allocated your energy, your sand, Some of your uh, sand to something yeah. else so that when you get to your hardest thing, you aren't in your peak state mm -hmm. of readiness you don't have as much energy and you're not going to um carry it out perform as, as well right so you if you're trying to let's say you're trying to lift your heaviest weight for mm -hmm. a certain number of reps well if you've fatigued yourself already and then you go to do that you're not going to get mm -hmm. the outcome that you want you're not going to perform at your best so if we take it back to that sand analogy if you wait until 80% of your sand mm -hmm. is gone from your bag of sand. Uh, you just don't have as much energy in the tank to yeah. do to, the, to perform this hard as well. A hundred percent. And it makes so much sense to me in a strength context, why you would start off your hardest, uh, quote, biggest, uh, most whole body movements first. Like you do them first and then you, you yeah, it's, as you it's, move in through fact, the workout. Not only is it a performance detriment, but it's an injury risk. Yes. To get to something big and where you need strength and power and you're already you've already like experienced you've already locally fatigued your certain muscles, um, then to put heavy weight in your hands yeah. or on your back is just not it's not a smart idea. That that totally makes sense. And so of course Unless being... unless it's CrossFit. <laughs> it's totally... and I and it's oh and, I, and I and I say that kind of jokingly, but it's also true because you can imagine, it, it, let's say you're an athlete, you can imagine that in sport, you do have to perform well, powerfully mm -hmm. exert high forces in a state of fatigue. So yeah. it's not necessarily the case that you never want to train yourself that way to be able to do that. But you just have to, you have to think about what you're trying to get out of it. And uh, that's a great point. So so maybe most of the time you would do your hardest thing when you're fresh. Um, but you could if you're, if, if particularly for athletes, you want to make sure that they're also prepared to maintain uh, integrity of their movement in a state of fatigue. That totally makes sense. But if sense. you're working on crow, yeah, you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to have fatigued yourself by doing a boatload of chaturangas and then try 100%. to do your thing. But you do want to do a boatload of chaturangas to prepare yourself to to gain the strength for crow pose. in the lo in the long term. Yes. Right. Like not acutely, but chronically you would want to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but yeah. the way that you describe peak pose sequencing is once you've done the peak pose, then the rest of it's cool down. That's right. That's right. So when you first, uh, suggested this or through our conversations, when this came up and I was like, what, no one has ever said this in the yoga world that I've ever seen. I took that and I integrated that into a class I taught in my online class library. That's called handstand play and prep. And it's like a 30 minute practice and it's totally based on your idea. But what we do in that class is handstand is obviously the peak. That's like what we're quote working toward. So we open with a brief warm up that's just designed to warm up the body acutely for handstand. Then we move into, we don't just like bam, just do handstand, but we do like a standing flow in which a bunch of handstand opportunities are woven in. So there's a bunch of opportunity for handstand really from the start. I mean, from the start post the warm up. 
and that lasts, I forget how long, maybe 15 minutes. And then for the rest of the class, we just work on some mobility things and some end range strength things like shoulder flexion, lift offs and wrist conditioning and these movements that we do that will benefit handstand, but in the longer term. So the rest of the class is, is um, dedicated toward those more chronic adaptation type moves. And I, I loved how it came out. And then all the t people who took it were confused. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, so so that's right. the challenge, right? Is meeting people's expectations because mm -hmm. people tend to expect the peak post to come later. And I, did, I, I haven't yet taken that class, but did you sort of preface, did, did you let people know that that was what was going to go down? And, and if you were recommending other teachers who were thinking about incorporating this, would you... Um, would you recommend that they give some sort of caveat Heads up. at the beginning of class <laughs> or let, let people know what's going to go down? And the reason I asked this, because I had not exactly related to this, but I once took a class that was, I, I guess it was a restorative class. I didn't know. I still don't know what it was, oh. but I, I've told you this before. I went into the class thinking that I was doing a, like a normal hot class. Like an active class. class. Yeah. yeah. And so the first couple of poses were like longer holds and i was like oh, okay this is the warm-up this is this is great i'm feeling this and then we maybe we did six poses the whole class each 10 minutes long and i was just like when is the warm-up gonna end what happened the whole class is a warm-up yeah and so i i realized eventually like okay this is this is what this class is um but but it was it didn't match my expectation and it was confusing mm -hmm. so yeah, i, I guess my super question satisfied it, yeah, it just wasn't what I thought it was mm -hmm. going to be. And maybe if I had known what it was going to be, I, maybe I wouldn't have taken it or maybe I just, maybe right. I would have. Or your expectations would I wouldn't have been, have been so confused. Yeah. So mm -hmm. with, with that in mind, do you feel like that's something that a teacher, because it's so different, is that something that a teacher should let the students know like, hey, we're going to do something a little different today or not? That's a great question. I mean, of course, I think it depends on the unique context in which you teach, who your students are, and what you're known for as a teacher. But I, 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 it's hard for me to remember because I, I filmed this class a few months ago now, but I think I did explain like why I was teaching it that way. And I know in the description, the written description, when you read it, it does explain like this is the order of the class. So I think I did feel, and even, even, um, I know people, they kind of know my teaching and not necessarily be so conventional, but even so I still felt the need to just, yeah, I don't, I mean, I didn't get into it too much because people just want to practice, you know, but I did, yeah. I think I did make a few comments about it. I think that would be appropriate. Um, yeah, you know, it's just like, this is a different way to sequence, try it on, see what you think. But mm -hmm. I, I believe in the longer term, and of course, it depends on what the peak pose is and what type of pose it is. But for yeah. many types of peak poses, I think that this strategy is actually better in the in the long term for actually uh, increasing your skill and capacity to do those right. poses. Yeah. So if your goal is really to do mm -hmm. crow, you mm -hmm. know, the, the full expression of the pose, maybe in the long term, doing it like this mm -hmm. is the way to go. I think so. I think so. For especially for a strong pose like that, but maybe also for poses that require deep ranges of motion too. I could see that as well because maybe, how much, maybe, how long yeah, do maybe you need to warm up? To... I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I. It kind of depends. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe with like different. a maybe with like a forward fold, having that as the peak pose, it just makes sense to keep progressively building. Yeah, but towards how much that, more will you like? How long do you really need? 
yeah. the warm up your max hip flexion or whatever. I mean, I know you need that, some, yeah, that, but how much? That's do you the need? question. Yeah, and, yeah. and at so what point this does might it be? At what point does the warm up become counterproductive towards expression of that pose? Yeah, and maybe it matters less when it's like a super flexy bendy pose. I have to think about that a little more. I think these yeah. are good questions for us to think about moving forward. But I think so far in this discussion, we've really laid out well um, just this idea of, of how when me as a coming from a yoga background person talked to you and was hanging out with you as coming from more of a strength and conditioning background person, the two of us talking together can really result in like these new ideas that maybe neither of us would have thought before. But I definitely know in the yoga world, I... I'm sure someone has thought of this before, but I've never seen anybody talk about yoga sequencing that way. And I think yeah, I, that's you've the taken way a lot of go. yoga classes, right? And I've taken a lot <laughs> yeah. of yoga classes. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's just um, encountered one like that. It's one way where cross talking between disciplines could actually re could really uh, be beneficial. Um, so with that, I think that we can wrap up today's discussion, but I really appreciate all of the thoughts that you shared and um, the wisdom and insight that you've shared with us coming from your strength and conditioning and exercise science background. I know that we in the in the coming from the yoga world, we have a lot to learn from your perspective. Well, I, I benefit equally from learning about the way that yoga classes are sequenced and how that yeah. can apply in my context. Absolutely. That's why I just I feel so thankful that we've been able to to connect and share with each other because it's really benefited, I think, how we both see the body and movement in general, which is so great. So thank you, Travis. Thank you. And that wraps up our look at yoga sequencing in this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and we would so appreciate your support for this new offering if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. And remember that you can use the code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in either Travis's and my Strength for Yoga program or any of my own separate offerings on my website. And you can find all of that at JennyRawlings.com and the link to that is in the show notes. You can also find out more about Travis and connect with him on his own at TravisPollen.com. And you can follow Travis on Instagram at fitness underscore pollinator. And the links to those are in the show notes as well. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you in our next episode. Do, do, do.